You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are delighted today to be joined by Dr. Helene Gale, a close friend and longstanding colleague. She's the president and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust. She's served in that role since October of 17. And in that period, she's put a huge emphasis on correcting the racial and ethnic wealth gap in Chicago. We'll hear more about that. For a decade, she served as president and CEO of CARE. In that period, joined the CSIS board where she's been very generous to us in the last 13 years. She's an MD, 20 years of service to CDC, five years at Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a noted global authority on HIV and infectious diseases. Thanks so much for being with us, Elaine, and thanks for all your support over the years. My pleasure. Now, Helene co-chaired the Committee on Equitable Allocation of Vaccine for the Novel Coronavirus. This was she did that with Bill Fage. This was a committee put together over the summer, and we're largely coming together today to talk about this this committee, which put put out a framework this fall, the framework for equitable allocation of COVID nineteen vaccine. It was formed in July, and at an exceptionally charged moment. I mean, we had the pandemic rebounding at a frightening pace. Hopes were accelerating that a safe and effective vaccines would become available in early. 2021, if not sooner. And that begged the question around how are they going to be allocated if, as they're introduced in the first phases. The committee was created at the moment when CDC itself, which normally leads on vaccine allocation matters, had been subjected to repeated political interference, for instance, on the guidance on reopening of schools and many other issues. And there was a concern that trust in government was waning. And so there needed to be some special effort, a credible, independent body put together to undertake this study of how to allocate vaccines equitably and fairly. And of course, this unfolded following George Floyd's murder when America entered an intensified national conversation and confrontation over issues of systemic racism, social justice, and police violence at the very moment when it was becoming painfully clear that COVID-19 was decimating Black, Latinx, and Native American populations. So thanks for joining us, Elaine. Let's Let's just talk a bit about what was it like as you jumped into this task at that charged moment in July, and and why why was this committee's mission so timely and so important? And then talk us a bit about how did it accomplish its work so fast in the midst of all of this turbulence? Thank you. Well, that's a lot to unpack, but let me just say, you know, as you mentioned, it was in the middle of the summer in July. A lot was going on here in Chicago. We were going through our own challenges as we faced uh, the impact of COVID-19 health as well as economic and, you know, I was asked in the middle of that to help co-chair this committee. And, you know, while it was clearly hugely important as a, you know, as a national effort, you know, I think all of us on that committee, and the committee was quickly formed, really recognized 
the challenge, but also the great uncertainty that we were facing. And as you mentioned, you know, there was a lot of political charged issues at the time, but also just basically a lot of uncertainty in which we had to come up with our recommendations. So, you know, first of all, there wasn't even a vaccine yet developed. We didn't know when a vaccine would be developed. A lot of hope was given to having a vaccine sometime uh, early this fall, but we didn't know. We didn't know anything about how effective the vaccine might be when it was developed. We didn't know how many doses would be necessary. The vaccines that were furthest ahead at the time were vaccines that ha- would probably have very, very stringent requirements for the temperature that they would need to be stored at, the number of vaccine types that might be available all at one time. So anyway, I I could go through the list of uncertainties, but we were clearly faced with both an incredibly rapid time frame. We were asked to have the report done by, by early October, so really only given about two, two and a half months to develop a report and as uh, many people know, usually when the National Academies does a study, it's somewhere in the range of a year, sometimes even 18 months. So we had this very, very rapid time frame because, again, nobody knew exactly when the vaccine would be available. And it was so important that there be a framework so that there was something to guide allocation of the vaccine once it was developed, understanding that most likely there would be a scarcity and there wouldn't be enough to allocate to the whole U.S. population, and therefore there needed to be some way of thinking about it rationally. So those were, you know, that was kind of the context in which we got started in our work. And, you know, I think we quickly organized ourselves to think about how do we look at what the ideal scenario was and then be able to look at a range of different possibilities and not try to boil the whole ocean at once, but look at, you know, if we had a safe and and efficacious vaccine that was reasonably, you know, somewhere 50, 70 percent effective in, in reducing disease, who would we give it to first and then what would be a way of, of giving it to others later? And so we, we started out by developing some foundational principles and then coming up with a risk framework. And then as a result of putting those principles together and the risk framework, we came up with our, our overarching allocation of uh, framework. So maybe I'll stop there. But that, you know, that's what we were basically juggling at the time. Can I just zero in on the whole question of, you know, we know that the Black, Latinx, and Native American, Indigenous communities are impacted very asymmetrically, uh, that the disparities are very, very pronounced. You settled upon a formula of trying to use geographic place and trying to use existing vulnerability indexes that had been developed to try and come to a resolution around prioritization. And there were competing considerations in to what degree you made these overtly racially based versus making them in terms of vulnerability and geography. Can you explain that? Because I think that was the most one of the most impressive and subtle aspects of this report. 
Yeah, so let me just back up and say a little bit about our foundational principles, because we thought it was important to to look at principles that were specific to this particular pandemic. And so, you know, the principles that we came up with, maximum benefit, because this has been a public health crisis that has had a huge economic impact as well as a health impact. So we, you know, this notion of how are we benefiting society? We also said equal concern was an important principle because we didn't want to look at where you fit on a pecking order versus, you know, if we valued all human life equally, how did we come up with an allocation that, you know, gave equal concern to all human life and value that? And then mitigation of health inequities, because this is, as you mentioned, you know, one of the hallmarks of this has been the fact that it has disproportionately impacted communities of color. We also, you know, said fairness, transparency, and evidence-based were other principles. But we, you know, I think this notion of equal regard, uh, equal concern, and and mitigation of health inequities was was critical as we thought about this. And we looked at this in a variety of different ways. First of all, you know, one of the key populations that was prioritized were healthcare workers. But we didn't say doctors and nurses. We said healthcare workers, anyone who was on the front line at a great risk of being exposed. Well, oftentimes, as we know, in nursing homes, in home health care, et cetera, those are often women of color. And so we wanted to make sure that even as we were thinking about the categories, that we were not making it hierarchical, but we were recognizing people who were putting themselves at greatest risk, professions that were more likely to be held by people of color because they were lower status and put them at greatest risk. So we looked at it across all of the different tiers that we came up with. But as you mentioned, we also said we wanted to have geographic priority given to communities that were high on the social vulnerability index that CDC or some other vulnerability index that looks at things like income, race, ethnicity, access to transportation, family composition, other things that are really the true reasons that put communities of color at greater risk. Because we know It's not about race, but it is about racism. And it's about how racism has impacted people, made them more socially vulnerable. And so that's why we didn't come up with a racial hierarchy, if you will, around how we distribute it. But we really wanted to focus on the factors that put one at risk if you are Black, Brown, Native American, et cetera. Thank you. Andrew, you want to jump in, please? Yeah, thanks, Steve. Helene, so great to see you, um, and thanks for being with us today. Um, looking ahead, the introduction of vaccines into America is going to happen in the middle of, you know, several really tough challenges. You know, financing still up in the air, local public health infrastructures rickety. The introduction of vaccines going to commence in the middle of the winter surge. High distrust and hesitancy persists with a divided electorate, particularly among. Black and Latino and Native American communities. And there's going to also potentially be a difficult political transition. So what are the recommendations in the report as it relates to getting the vaccine in terms of trust, in terms of these obstacles? Yeah. And that, you know, as I started out talking about some of the uncertainty issues, you know, I think that's one of the really big ones is 
you know, if there is a vaccine, will people even take it? And we know that there are polls that show, you know, up to 50% of Americans, even if a vaccine is available, aren't sure whether they'll take it. And I think it's, you know, largely because there's been so much misinformation, misinterpretation, and even the name Operation Warp Speed gave people the sense that we were developing something faster than it should be developed and without understanding how vaccine development works, that, you know, warp speed wasn't cutting corners. What it was doing was it had the opportunity to do things in parallel that we generally do sequentially in terms of vaccine development. And so, you know, but nonetheless, I think there were still a lot of reasons why a lot of questions were raised in people's minds. When you have politicians saying that a vaccine is going to be available by a date certain, when we know that science doesn't work like that, you know, again, raises a lot of concerns in people's minds. And if you're from populations who have been a part of historical mistrust because of bad experimentation and being used in inappropriate ways, you know, this has really opened the floodgates for that kind of mistrust. So, Given that, the issue of vaccine hesitancy, you know, basically was covered, you know, in three different recommendations that we have. And the bottom line for the three recommendations are that we need to have a national campaign to promote and to provide fact-based information about this vaccine, that there needs to be strong engagement with communities, particularly communities of color, where there is a longstanding mistrust of experimentation and things that are seen to be government trials and other things. So, you know, clearly making sure that communities are engaged with this, have the facts, and that people who are trusted by communities, again, particularly communities of color, are part of the promotion and communication about this vaccine. So, and that it would be important to develop the science base so that we're looking at what are the right ways, in fact, to talk about this vaccine? What are the things that will really make populations accept a safe vaccine when it is available? So, you know, we we put a lot of focus on how do you chip away at this issue of vaccine hesitancy and how do you make sure that the information is clear and transparent and that you have communities and partners in the effort to increase uptake of, of the vaccine. So it's, it's an important component. Helene, can I get back to the report itself and the way that you, you know, you put together the four phases and you have different categories of populations in, in different points in time. Maybe you can give us a quick snapshot of that, but also talk about the complexities of trying to make those kind of calls because you do run into some, some inevitably into some difficulties of how do you define who's a high risk worker versus medium risk and how do you assess who has underlying conditions to qualify. And then there's all these questions around those who we don't yet know the science around vaccinating children for this and for women that are in childbearing years. Say a bit about how you went around structuring the the different phases, and then how you work through some of those complexities. So we we took our, as I mentioned, our kind of our foundational principles and paired those with our allocation criteria based on risk. So we had four different risks that we were considering, risk of acquiring or transmitting the infection, risk of severe illness or death, 
and then risk of negative consequences to society. And that's how we looked at how we would come up with the different phases. And we have four phases and we intentionally did phases as opposed to tiers because, you know, a tier kind of is, is more static. And we thought of these as phases with uh, understanding that there would be scarcity in the beginning, but ultimately we would want this vaccine available to the whole population. So we started with our first phase focused on um, groups that had most of those four risks that I talked about, acquiring, transmitting, severe disease, negative consequences. And we came up with our first phase, including high-risk healthcare workers and first responders, because obviously they are at very high risk of being in contact with somebody with SARS-CoV-2, and they also serve such important roles in society. So healthcare workers being out of society has clear negative consequences. Also in that phase were all people who had the kinds of underlying diseases that put them at serious risk of either severe disease or death, and then all older people living in congregate settings. So that was our very first phase, and that was the kind of the most serious with the the most number of those risks. And as we went along from phase one to phase four, you know, you had fewer of those risk categories, if you will, or those risk criteria. And that's how we went through it. But as you said, you know, some of this is, is complicated. You know, people who have a precondition that puts them at serious risk need to know that once a vaccine becomes available, they need to go to their doctor's office. And that's why having a national campaign is so important because, you know, everybody may or may not be registered with a health department and they may not, you know, health departments may not know to contact them. But if you have the information and you know you have one of the diseases that puts you at great risk, you then know to go and get vaccinated. So I think, you know, part of being able to do this effectively is really linked to having the right kind of a communication strategy in place. We also, because this is kind of an overarching framework, recognize we wanted to have enough flexibility. So we developed the four phases, but we know that within states, within localities, they will have the flexibility to to adapt this to their own circumstances. So we didn't want to be overly prescriptive. We knew that there was some flexibility in this. And we know that states and localities are the ones who are going to be able to adapt this to their own local needs. Helene, how does all of this tie to your day job at the Chicago Community Trust? Because you're working with a lot of the similar issues in your you know, daily existence, trying to change policy and practices regarding racism. Well, I guess it, it fits in, in my day job in the sense that, you know, this has been a disease pandemic and that has had a disproportionate impact on communities who were already financially as well as health-wise overburdened. You know, here in Chicago, we see that COVID has had its biggest impact on Black and Latinx community. And so it's very consistent with a lot of the work that we've been doing to focus on closing the racial and ethnic wealth gap here in the Chicago region. And, you know, we highlighted that area for priority because, it's such a important aspect across the board. You know, 
it impacts health, it impacts education, it impacts violence and, and other issues. So we really felt that if we could have an impact on closing the racial and ethnic wealth gap, we were also helping it to improve health, improve education, decrease violence, add to all the quality of life aspects that people want to address. And so you know, while this was not directly related to my day job, if you will, it is very in sync and aligned with the issues that we're looking at in terms of racial and economic equity, because we know what a huge impact it has on health as well. You talked about a moment ago about how, okay, the report comes out, it's an advisory report. You're trying to create a national consensus. I think you went pretty far along in getting that group together around a very compelling vision is pretty consistent with what others are saying, including the WHO, is there seems to be a lot of resonance between this report and what others are saying should be a reasonable, pragmatic kind of phased approach to the vaccines. So I think you've you've contributed a lot in trying to set the frame as states and municipalities and territories are coming up with their plans. And those plans are now, now coming in and, and people are starting to look at them Do you think we're going to have a better outcome this time around than 2009? I mean, during the H1N1, there was a lot of frustration that there was a similar kind of exercise, not as extensive and high quality as this perhaps. But at the end of the day, people were making decisions at state and local levels driven by political considerations and simple expediency on who can we reach when with vaccines as they become. Are you feeling a bit bit better about this time around that There'll be lots of flexibility with what happens at a state, municipal, and territory level, but that will have some broad consistency across the country around how we should be doing this. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think, you know, it's one of the reasons why I think CDC and NIH asked the National Academies to do this study and to do it relatively quickly so that there was something out there, because in the absence of having guidance and a framework it is easy to have chaos and and lack of organization. And so I think, you know, they felt strongly that having this framework out there would help to put a marker down in a way that was incredibly important and that could be used by other policymakers. So the ACIP, which advises CDC on, on vaccine practices, you know, is using our framework to help to develop theirs. Others have used our framework, you know, including looking at it from a global perspective. So I do think that having it in place and having done it quickly so that there was something out there is very important. You know, one of our key recommendations is also to use the existing structures. There is a framework and a structure for immunizations that has existed that has worked well when we strengthen that versus trying to come up with alternative routes of execution and implementation of of vaccination. So we really felt it was incredibly important to use that, learn from other allocation exercises, including H1N1, where there were mistakes made, but we can learn from those mistakes. So I really do think there are a lot of things in place that allow us to perhaps be better than we were back with H1N1 and learn from those lessons as well as other lessons and build on what we know works, because this is going to be an incredibly complicated exercise. How were you able to move so quickly, do you think? We were able to move so quickly because we had a deadline. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, there's nothing that forces you to uh, be expeditious like a deadline. We had a hard deadline. We worked against it. And I think it was important because, again, there were so many unknowns. And to the night before we were finishing our report, new information was coming in all the time. And it would have been easy to keep trying to stay up and stay current. And we just had to say, this is what we know now. Outline what the scenarios would be and how they would be impacted, how our framework would be impacted by different scenarios. But move forward, understanding that uncertainty was part of, was built into this. And so we took the best information we could, understanding the uncertainties, but felt like it was important to move ahead with what we did know. And I think as we looked at it, we still feel like the phases that we came up with, the principles that we used, the allocation criteria that we have will stand the test of time, even as you know things change over the next year or two. But I think we really do feel like we have a, we, we developed a solid framework that can accommodate different scenarios as this continues to evolve. So what gives you the greatest hope going forward? About the vaccine in general or about life? Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 both. We want to know both. Well, you know, I guess about the vaccine, you know, we've never, anybody who is alive today has never seen anything like this. And, you know, this is the first time that a public health crisis has had this kind of global societal impact, that it has had such a huge impact on our economy. It's had a huge impact on, you know, the way we live our lives. And so I think there's a commitment to making this work and working together in a way that, you know, I haven't seen, you know, perhaps ever but I think the the imperative is so great. We've got to get this right. So that's kind of, in a way, what gives me hope is that I think the stakes are so high that we will figure out how to come together to make this work. Why do I have optimism overall? Is because, you know, I just, I do believe that you have to take the long view. You know, we have ups and downs, but I think if you continue to keep in mind what, you know, keep your eyes on the prize, as they say, you know, I think it allows us to go through times where the going is a bit tougher, where it's easy to get disillusioned. But I think if we think about, for me, you know, my North Star is how do we become a more equitable and just society? That's not something that happens overnight. But I think it's something if you really believe that we can, as human beings, move more in that direction, then, you know, that's what kind of keeps me going. Thank you. Thank you so much. And congratulations. I mean, the Academy's must be very proud about what resulted from this process. It's it's really quite impressive, and, and it's and most importantly, it's done. <laughs> <laughs> Came in on time, on time, and under budget. <laughs> and if I could just say one other word back to what gives me um, optimism, hope, whatever. This committee was extraordinary. You know, we did this whole thing virtually, most people having never met each other before. And the way people came together, you know, it was bioethicists, statisticians, epidemiologists, infectious disease specialists, global health expertise, etc. This group came together in a remarkable way. And I think it to see how we were able to come together because 
we believed in this important, bigger mission makes me believe that others can do it too. So I take great inspiration from the committee uh, and the way we were able to develop community and come together in a short space of time to do something important. And I think that's the way it, it always happens. Well, thank you so much, Helene, for being with us. And thanks for your service and uh, along with Bill Fagey and bringing this to the finish line on time and under budget. And it's a terrific piece of work and very, very important, I think, in guiding the ne- this next phase. So thank you. Thanks, Helene. Yeah, take care. All right. See you all.